0: Hey, deserving listeners. It's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. Uh, The first email here is from patron Liz. She writes, Hi, Dr. Honda. Tonight was a tough night for me as a therapist. I'm writing in to thank you for a previous podcast you did, which helped me while working with my client. My client is a young teenage girl who is in foster care. I've seen her for a year, and tonight she felt safe enough to fully discuss the physical and emotional abuse she endured from her foster parent. I had absolutely no idea the extent of her suffering. I was able to navigate this difficult moment better when I channeled a previous episode you did. You were working with a girl who was sexually abused, and you empowered her to make the call to CPS herself. So, I sat with my client tonight, and I remembered that episode— And I could have filed the form myself, but instead I discussed the options with her, and eventually she decided she wanted to report to CPS herself. We called together, we reported, and all I could do was sit in amazement of her courage. Thanks for what you do. It means a lot to me. Yeah, patron Liz. uh, I don't know how long ago you sent this in. I'm guessing it was a long time ago. I currently have like, I don't know, three years of backlog of emails from people who have written in. And uh, so God knows how long ago this was. But... Uh, great, good for you. Uh, Yeah, it's something that I found, someone must have recommended it to me years ago, but I find it to be very helpful. You know, there's a sort of assumption in our field sometimes that when you make CPS calls, it's sort of something that you do in private. And then you just sort of cross your fingers and hope that your client doesn't hate you. But there's a wholly other way to do this, which is the way that patron Liz did it, which is, When the client tells you that they are being abused, you say, so just to remind you, as I did uh, in the first session and and in other sessions after that, and you also signed a disclosure statement uh, that stated you understood this, I am a mandated reporter, which means that when I hear about abuse of children, I have to report that. And so by you telling me this, I have to report that. But uh, the The best way for this to happen is for you to make the report yourself because you 're the person who went through it you 're the person who knows the details, and really the system is designed to help you to help you uh, get safe to protect you and so uh, you know I invite you to uh, make the call with me right now let 's uh, how do you feel about that and the client will say, "Well, what does this mean and how will this affect me and Will there be any repercussions? And will they swoop in and take me away? And you know what's what's the what's going to happen? And if you know anything about CPS process, you could provide some examples of what's happened before or some guidance around it. Of course, you can't predict what CPS is going to do or what's going to happen, but you can you know belay some fears. I think because some people have some pretty exaggerated views of what CPS. Child Protective Service can do and will do typically. And so you walk through that, and then you just make the call with them. I've even done it with perpetrators. I once had a kid who told me that he had abused his younger siblings, and I told him that I was a mandated reporter and I had to make a report. Um, and so he was not happy about that This because this was sexual abuse. I can't remember how it came about. I don't know if his mom told me or he told me, but somehow in a family session, I, I came to uh, to the knowledge that this teenage boy had sexually abused younger people, and I told them that I was a mandated reporter, and I had to report that, and of course, the family was not happy about that. They uh, distrusted the system anyway, and so it was a big challenge in the moment, and you know, I just I probably spent hour and a half talking about it with him. This was back when I had the flexibility in family therapy to extend my family therapy sessions. But at any rate, I just said, you know, I, I'm going to have a conversation with this client about this, and because the alternative is is I act like everything's fine, I go home, and then I make a CPS report, and the client is investigated and then realizes that i made a report basically behind their back which isn't how i would uh, see it but it would be how they might interpret it and so it, in my view it's much better to try to involve the client now some situations you can't do that where you know you might be afraid that the client will attack you if you make a report but those situations are pretty rare so yeah. Anyway, this teenage kid—he was not happy, and he, you know, pleaded with me not to do it. He said he would run away. He said he'd get angry at me. He said he'd get revenge. And I, I just stuck with him. I, you know, it's normal to have those kinds of feelings. It's normal to have defense mechanisms, like threatening of violence, to kick in in a situation like that. And I just, you know, stayed calm and and differentiated and and compassion i just said you know i i get it that you would be afraid i get that you're upset and i'm j- i'm just telling you that i, I don't have any choice there the, i would lose my license if i didn't make a report actually so or i would you know risk losing my license so i'm i'm really sorry but remember how i talked about in the beginning of this whole ordeal is that if i hear about something like this i have to report it there's just there's just no choice for me And I also said that if if he works collaboratively with the system, things go a lot better. And I'm giving him an opportunity to start that ball rolling by making the call himself. So I said, you know, if as a you know a perpetrator of sexual abuse, if you make the call yourself, it's going to make you look a lot better, my friend. Uh, It's you know rather than me making the call against your will. If you make that call and say, I have done these things, the system is going to be elated (laughs) that a perpetrator is taking responsibility and taking steps to make sure it never happens again because I know that you don't want it to happen again. I know that you're not planning on doing it again. You, You care about people and you've made some mistakes and you don't want to make those mistakes anymore and if you can demonstrate that to the government they're going to be much more likely to work with you instead of against you. And he agreed and he made that call. It was a, you know, memorable session. It was probably, I don't know, it's probably like 18 years ago and I still remember that session obviously. It doesn't happen very often to me. Especially now with my current practice cuz one I don't have that many clients cuz I'm doing other things like at the university and on this podcast but also because I just don't get those kind of clients anymore. In fact, I don't see any kids or teenagers anymore. It's just for whatever reason, I get a lot of referrals for for adults and couples. But anyway, let's move on to the next email. Before going on to the next email, I just want to tell people that I am working on a number of deep dives currently, and I would have done that today, but I didn't think I had enough time to actually uh, do it, so... Uh, I, so I know everyone's asking for a lot of deep dives, so I, j- I just want to let everyone know that uh, I have a number in the works. Okay, so this email is from patron Alexandra. She writes, Hi, Dr. Kirk. I was wondering, is it healthy to see more than one therapist at the same time? Currently, I'm seeing two therapists. And then uh, patron Alexandra gives a story about how it came about that she is working with two therapists. It's sort of a long and winding road she goes on to say, I told one of my therapists about this, that I was seeing two therapists, and she told me that I should not see two therapists at the same time. She said I would get confused about what the two therapists were telling me. She also said I would be splitting my trust between the two therapists. What's your take on this? Why is it not recommended to see two therapists? Uh, Yeah, end of email. Yeah, this is a common perspective in my field that you're not supposed to see two therapists at a time. And really, that's just silly. It's ridiculous. I mean, show me the research that, that proves that 100% of the time this is, un, this is not recommended. You know, what ethical guideline says that you can't do this? And if you can't come up with the research and you can't come up with an ethical guideline and you can't come up with like sound literature on the topic – then really, what you're just reacting to is some kind of defense mechanism that's kicking in because you're afraid of something. I think that therapists feel threatened when another therapist is involved, and I see this all the time. You know, therapists are incredibly insecure people. I mean, take it from me, especially when I was in my early career. And when it be, be, the reason why they're insecure isn't—it's not because they're flawed human beings. It's because you know when you're a plumber and you fix a pipe, there's a very easy way to figure out if you did it right. You know, if when you turn the water back on at the main uh, valve and the pipe is fixed, then you can walk away going, I did a good job. Um, Whereas if in a week it starts, it springs a leak again, then you know you didn't sweat the pipes well enough. Well, in therapy, there's nothing like that. And even when we do have some things that are kind of like that, it, it takes a – it's not often that we get those kinds of affirmations that we're doing a good job. And so therapists are walking around trying really hard and just feeling incredibly insecure about whether or not they're useful at all. I mean you could make the argument that some therapists have been practicing for 30 years and, ha- and they haven't done a single good thing for their clients. Uh, and there, you, you could make an argument like that, and to a therapist's face, and the therapist would have a hard time refuting you. I mean, they would have anecdotes like, "Well, I had this one client that said I was helpful," or, "You know, I, I, it seems like I am helping them." And now, as a therapist myself, I'm the same way. It's just not the sort of field. Like plumbing, where you can walk away and say I did a good job, or you know, building a boat. For example, it's like, did the boat float or not? You know, if it floats, then great, it works. You know, but in therapy, it's just not that way. So you have all these therapists walking around that are terrified and insecure. And when there are scrutiny, when there's when there's scrutiny on their work, therapists freak out because of this deep seated insecurity. And so when you have two therapists involved both therapists are terrified the other therapist is going to call them out on their incompetence. And so the fastest way to get rid of that fear is to look towards some kind of dogma or cultural aspects within our field that supports the recommendation to get rid of that other therapist. So, you know, they'll say, well, you know, and these common things will happen. It's like, well, You know, you as a client, we're going to be pulling you in two different directions. And I remember hearing that earlier in my career and totally going along with that. But that's really stupid. I mean, that'd be like saying you can't have two parents because both parents are automatically going to be pulling you in two directions. Now, two parents can pull a child in two different directions, but if they work together, then they won't be pulling the person in two directions. Plus, if both therapists are doing a good job in helping even if they're not coordinating their efforts they probably are pulling in the boat in the same direction you know the notion that you have two therapists pulling in opposite directions and therefore you should not have both therapists you ju- you should just have one the question uh, you know arises well wait if two different professionals are pulling you in two different directions then how do you know which direction is right and are both people and are both therapists pulling in the wrong direction I assume that if I'm working uh, – if I have a client and they're working with another therapist as well, I assume that the other therapist is doing a good job. I feel like I'm doing a good job and therefore we're probably pulling in the same direction. So so there's that. The other thing is is that the patron writes is that she says that the, the therapist said that um, – she would the client would be splitting her trust between two therapists well, how does what does I don't, what does that even mean splitting your trust uh, why does that matter again show me the research that splitting your trust among two therapists is a bad thing for the client in terms of outcomes plus that sounds strangely territorial doesn't it <laughs> like you know, as a therapist, it's like, I demand that you trust only me. It's That is not healthy. <laughs> you know, that com- I demand complete loyalty to me and no one else besides me. I am the one God and there is no other. You know, do not worship false idols. And it's, it's just really gross to me. And the the thing that's really sickening about this is that I would venture to say 99% of therapists agree that you can't have two therapists working with the same client. Because when you have a group of people who are almost universally insecure about their practice, and you allow a you know notion to float around that uh, you know there shouldn't be two therapists involved, and clients don't have any power because you know patron Alexandra, uh, what's what's she going to do if this therapist is doing something that I might even consider to be slightly unethical, just a just a flat out. Uh, you know, force your client not to see another clinician that, that they like to see uh, without looking into it, without, coor- without trying to coordinate at the very least. Um, what's patron Alexander going to do? Well, uh, she could go to the licensing board. She could sue, but I'm guessing nothing would come of it. And she probably doesn't know where to go. And she probably doesn't want to go through that hassle. And so basically you have no pushback on a notion that is in our field there's no one advocating for clients saying, well, wait a second here, therapists, you know, show me the research on that. And uh, isn't it uh, worth trying to coordinate? I mean, the client should have the autonomy to see as many therapists as they want to see, because it's a free country, and they should do they should be able to do what they want. And can't can't a client figure out what's best for themselves? I mean, can't, can't you leave it up to the client and say, like, look, uh, is it helpful to see two therapists? And if the client says, "Yeah, I think so," then you're like, "Okay, great." Then you got my blessing on that. I mean, it, it's just it's just gross. It's a super power play, and it's just it's just another example of of uh, grossness of my field. Sometimes it just really disgusts me. Again, if it was just two or you know two or three percent of therapists. Uh, you know, had this idea that I'd be like, well, you know, you're always going to have some kooky people. But uh, like I said, I would say a majority of clinicians feel this way. Again, that's just anecdotal. I haven't, I haven't looked at the research, probably because there isn't any research in this area, or very little, because one, it's not a hot topic in our field. And two, uh, client, you know, therapists, I guess, just don't really care to do that. Um. So, so yeah it's gross now having said all that certainly there are times when two therapists would be a bad idea particularly if the therapists if one or both of the therapists are bad you know um, like if a client is working on some intense trauma issues for example and um, you know intense trauma Exposure therapy, imaginal exposure therapy is happening. Uh, The other, well, you know, as I come up with these examples, I could still imagine there being a use for another therapist. I mean, the other therapist, as long as there's coordination, and the other therapist is like, okay, you know, so say, so say, there's some very intense, complex PTSD work, or even borderline personality work that's happening, relational therapy that's happening. And then there's this other therapist, and so, uh, so just let me give an example for myself. Let's say I'm working with a client with borderline or complex PTSD, and I'm and I'm working on long-term treatment of, um, of you know, relational trauma. And it's very intense work, and it really requires some very careful countertransference management on my part, rupture management, relationship building with the client. You know, very careful work. It's not it it's not for the faint of heart, and it's not it's not not complicated. <laughs> um, and you know, let's imagine that my client also had another therapist who was working on support or uh, cognitive therapy or. Um, you know, problem solving at work, uh, just venting supportive therapy, I could absolutely imagine that help or, you know, better yet, the other therapist talks with the client about their work with me. And the client goes to this other therapist and says, Yeah, you know, he was saying this, and that sort of hurt my feelings. And I didn't know what to do. And the therapist is like, Well, you know." that makes sense that that would hurt your feelings. Maybe you should talk with them about it. How do you feel about that? And, you know, the client's like, well, I don't know. You know, there's a lot of benefit to having another therapist. Again, as long as both therapists are competent and as long as y- you coordinate care, which actually isn't that hard because I've done it before, uh, then, you know, embrace the messiness. Life is messy. And, you know, therapists who try to clean up clients' lives is a power play. It's ignorant of the realities of life, you know. Because this is another, uh, this is the, another problem that's related to this is when uh, people have family therapy or couples therapy. For example, if you present it like a, sometimes I will be seeing two siblings um, and the parents. So so I you know a family comes to me and I lay out a treatment plan that involves you know I'm going to meet with. Johnny individually. I'm going to meet with Jane. The kid. I'm going to meet with two teenage kids individually. I'm going to meet with the parents as a couple, and then sometimes we're going to meet all together. And as a family therapist, I am completely comfortable with that, and I can justify it very easily. And I can show the research, and I can um, demonstrate that there are there are pros and cons to to my treatment plan as opposed to. Having everyone have their own therapists and uh, and i 've been doing it for decades, and family therapists have been doing it for decades it 's just it 's just par for the course for family therapy this way now there are times when you don 't want to do that, but you know for the most part we 're fine with that we're we 're okay with the messiness of therapy now there are confidentiality things that you have to consider there's there 's bookkeeping and Uh, record keeping issues that you have to consider, but it's all handleable. And there's all there's a there's guides in family therapy to deal with that. But you present that to, again, the vast majority of therapists who, you know, because unless you're in the field, you might not know this, but the vast majority of clinicians in mental health, don't even know what family therapy is, let alone uh, that they are family therapists. And so they would look at me and they would say, unethical. That is terrible that he is working with all those different people. There's all sorts of problems with that. And it's like, show me the research and show me the ethical guideline that says I can't do that. Uh, show me the, you know, the, the, the black and white evidence that this is a bad thing. Uh, And, and then I will concede until then shut the fuck up and take your dogma and shove it up your ass. So, you know, it's just like, it, it, again, if a small, if a small, and I, and I have had those conversations, I <laughs> just, while I'm on this topic, uh, I think I've talked about this before in, in, on the podcast, I was in court once and this extremely ignorant judge started to yell at me about this issue. And I wasn't even in court. I was just there to support the family. I wasn't even there for any particular reason. And, and somehow it came out that I was seeing the kid individually sometimes and I was seeing the family also. So I'd work with the kid alone sometimes and then I'd meet with the parents and the kid, which is total standard practice for family therapists when you're dealing with teenagers and their parents. Because, you know, you got to meet with the – the teenager individually to, uh, you know, because they're not going to be very honest around their parents and relaxed if they're in session with their parents. But you also have to meet with the parents and you also have to work on communication between the teenager and the parents. And who better to do that than the person who really has a good relationship with the teenager? It's just a no duh in the family therapy world. But anyway, this, this judge who is actually in family court, so it's not just some random judge, this judge like specializes in family court proceedings, uh, catches wind of the fact that I'm treating the, you know, teenager sometimes alone, and then I'm treating the family as a whole. And the judge proceeds to just completely bitch me out. Just she was like visibly hostile and angry and and, like enraged. (laughs) And I just sat there in my at this point, I was I was a professor of family therapy. I'd been practicing, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 years at that point, maybe longer, I don't know. And so as she started yelling at me, I just—I was just astounded at her stupidity and ignorance. And this is another just bone I have to pick with the judicial system. I mean, judges, you know, we want to believe they're gods, but they're not. These are flawed human beings who, you know, have sometimes barely above average intelligence, don't really understand how the world works, might not have any common sense, but we just pray to God that they do because everything sort of, you know, relies on that. And I have just seen so many judges uh, just seemingly, you know, they know how to articulate themselves very well, uh, but sometimes they just, it's just amazing how, Uh, Now, maybe for some people, like, well, of course, judges are human beings, you know, how could they not be? But, uh, you know, for the first quarter of my life, or, you know, for the first that quarter of my life, but for the the first number of years of my life, I just thought judges, I don't know, just had more intelligence, wisdom, and I'm sure some do. Anyway, the point is, is that she was yelling at me about the, the same thing. And I was already pretty confident in my uh, my treatment plan and the research about it in my field that I I didn't respond to her. I just said in my head, in my head, I was just like, Oh, my God, you're so dumb. And, you know, it didn't, it didn't, uh, I didn't have to respond. And so I just didn't. I was just like, Okay, you know, thanks for the thanks for the useless input on my treatment plan you judge who knows nothing about family therapy. That's just, that's just great. How about I give you some useless, ignorant advice about the law? Uh, I know nothing about the law. How about I just like start telling you how to, how to be a judge? You know, how how about, how about that? You know, I start commenting on uh, when to hit the gavel or something. It's just like, anyway, I'm ranting. Let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. Um, I just want to comment on one thing before going on to the next email, and that is is that uh, a a number of people have been finding me on Facebook and friending me, which is fine to do, but I just want to make an announcement that I, a long time ago, just decided that I would only be Facebook friends with people who I knew in my personal life or professional life somehow. And that i i wouldn't uh, be friends on facebook with clients or with podcast listeners it, it with clients makes sense obviously right i mean that's a common practice and common boundary and really recommended boundary if you use your facebook page the way most people do um but i until recently i haven't been getting many facebook friend requests from from listeners um but have been more recently. And the, and the reason why I I don't is because sometimes listeners become clients or listeners will um, recommend someone to me or something. And although my practice has been basically full for a long time, uh, maybe I could rethink that. But I don't know. I, I've just always had this thing where it's just like, uh, I think I'm just going to – interact with the fans through the Facebook page you know i i have a facebook page where you know and i'll post pictures of my cats and and my musings and whatnot and i don't know it just seems like a boundary that i i should keep ethically speaking just because i you know i'm still a clinician and all that kind of stuff and and i really hope that makes sense now having said that i have met in person, some listeners and have become friends with them, so it at some point, I sort of say, "Well, I could probably become Facebook friends with that person because they're they're a legitimate person that I will hang out with sometimes or you know email with on a f- friend to friend basis. Um, I think I'm friends facebook friends with famous patron Lyndon, for example, but he might be the only one anyway. Yeah, having said all that, as as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, well, maybe I could change that, and in the future, uh, I uh, I wonder what will happen with my career uh, to the point where all that could change. Um, but anyway, the, I, I, for now, it's just it's just easier for me. I'm just like uh, I'll just keep that as a boundary, and um, and I know other podcasters, like I think Umberto is uh, responding to. F- friend request. So you could, you could friend him and you could see our posts that we make together, I suppose. But, but anyway, so there's that. Uh, another, just a few other announcements. Uh, if you're not a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives on various different topics. Also, uh, if you want to buy my book, it's called Multi-Role Clinical Supervision, it's available on Amazon. I think it's about forty dollars. Uh, people are saying they like to read it, so uh, it uh, uh, for some people it's it's worth it. So go there. Also, uh, like us on Facebook. You can participate in our Tuesday tougher bluff games. Those are always fun. Lots of activity there, and you can also join the Facebook fan group that famous patron Linden moderates. And I am not on there, so you and I never go there. So you can. Umberto goes there, but but I don't go there. Uh, lots of activity there, too. Also, I just want to announce also that on most, if not all, podcast apps on your phone, they only have the most recent 300 episodes. And so we have, uh, at Psychology in Seattle, uh, over 600 episodes. So you won't see all the episodes on your phone. And I've been trying to figure out a way to remedy that, you know. And, and so, so some podcasts will actually rerun old episodes, but I find that to be a little cumbersome because it's like the feed will just be kind of jumbled up with past and present stuff. And so I, 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 just, I just don't want to do that. And I will recommend that if you want to listen to old episodes that you just go to the website because the website, psychologyseattle.com, has every single episode that we've ever made and it's all laid out chronologically and you, you can listen there so that's what i would recommend for that also we have a list on our website of every single episode people often ask me because in the beginning it wasn't hard to scroll through the app to find an, an episode on a particular topic but now with almost 700 episodes it's hard to scroll through plus not all the episodes are on your phone anyway so if you're trying to find a particular topic you know cuz sometimes people will email me a question and the, and then I'll I'll say well actually we've done an episode on that so go listen to that and Let me know if you have more questions. Um, Having said that, if you have a question and you just want to ask and you don't want to bother going through the archive to see if we've talked about it before, that's fine. Don't feel like you have to do your homework (laughs) because sometimes people will email me and they'll be like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry that I emailed you a question that you already answered. I I feel so terrible about it and you know, don't (laughs) uh, – it's not a big deal uh, to me at all. I I I love interacting with you guys. Also, we're having our 10-year anniversary show in August 2018. We haven't set a date yet, but just... Uh, you know, set aside that entire month. Just don't don't schedule anything for that entire month, and uh, that will help me. Also, if you become a twenty dollar patron, you get one of our mugs. I, I just sent those out uh, a, a couple the other day. Uh, every couple months or two or three months, I'll do it because it's kind of a process. I, it, it's something I have to physically do. I have to order the mugs from the people who make them. I have to package them in a way that they'll withstand the journey. I have to. Handwrite the you know the address on the thing. I have to tape it all up. I have to you know drive to the post office. I'm sure there's an easier in a way to do this, but it's kind of a it's it's a morning that I have to spend, and so uh, I can't. So I'm saying this because when you become a twenty dollar patron, it might take me a bit of time before I actually get it to you. Also, we've changed the Patreon goal on Patreon to. the next goal, if we if we get a a certain amount of patrons, we will create a scholarship fund for for patrons or for listeners. I guess it would be for anybody. And uh, I don't know how much the scholarship would be, but I don't know. I'm I'm guessing at least a thousand, if not more. And then we take applications because a lot of our listeners are. Uh, students, uh, aspiring students, and some of them are in need. And so, um, when you become a patron, we will donate to various different causes. We we just wrote a check for two thousand dollars for Pet Finder Foundation, which saves pets from being euthanized. And there's it's a Pet Finder is this is this huge organization of volunteers essentially of homes that will be foster homes for animals and uh, volunteers who will uh, pay for shots for animals it's it's a it's just a wonderful um, compassionate group of people that are not interested in making money they're interested in in helping cats and dogs having said all that I feel like I don't know if this is on my mind. Um, my Mike, one of my cats, uh, the boy, is not doing well. In fact, by the time this episode even gets uh, published, there's a chance that he will have died. And it's awful to think about that. And he's very ill, and he won't eat anymore. And you know, the vet is saying that it's probably his time and it's awful. And I'm writing a book on grief, and one of the sections that I'm writing is about the grief we experience when our pets die. Um, I, I, in the, basically, the theme of the book is that most grief and loss is not valued or supported by our society in the United States. And, and probably throughout the world, there are various different things you could say but i i do know that in the united states most losses are not supported you know when you get divorced uh you know how many people really ask you how you're doing uh, a few years later when when a pet dies how many people really take the time you know how how many people get a week off from work after their pet dies you know i i don't imagine that ever happens but it can be devastating when you when you lose a pet when you get divorced when when your ex spouse dies how many times do you get invited to the memorial you know say uh, you get divorced and then 30 years later your former spouse dies do you even get notified and you know you were married to that person for a long time and and depending on how you feel about it you w- might want to be included in that And so there's just all these, and the list goes on and on and on in terms of losses that, you know, uh, abortion, uh, stillbirths, uh, uh, you know, there's just so many losses that people um, not only just don't support, uh, but even consider to be taboo to even talk about. And so, um, anyway, (laughs) uh, that's just me ranting about that, but I am feeling those feelings right now, and... I uh, am just really sad, and it, it's it's almost paralyzing to have a pet who is defenseless. You know, they they depend on us for everything, and to be there, you know, with the process. It's and it, the worst part about it is, I well, I can't. For me, the worst part about it is that at some point I have to make that decision to actually euthanize or to put it more bluntly kill my cat. <laughs> I mean, not with my own hands of course, but I, you know, I, at some point I have to put him in a holder and drive him to the vet and drop him off. And I know there are other options, you know, you can have uh, uh, vets come to the house and I've done that before and, um, and they can euthanize the the uh, pet in your own home. Um, but for me, uh, anyway, at some point, I have to make that call. And uh, it's just such an awful prospect, Be, you know, because with humans, when humans die, typically, from what I understand, there's sort of a drifting off. It's, there's sort of a natural process. You know, often there's opioids involved of pain removal and the person just kind of slowly drifts away Um, and or they have some kind of massive episode and they they die quote-unquote naturally so to speak and there's never a there's rarely a point where a human has to say okay now is the time i have decided that i'm going to authorize the killing of this creature this this person and and it's just it's just it's just an it just tears me apart. It's just such an awful uh, position to be in, but it is the position that I'm in. I mean, there's just no other way, right? I mean, you can't it's, I guess I could just let him pass away naturally, but culturally speaking, that's not what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to not make them go through that. We're supposed to have compassion and not be selfish and let them go faster um, so that they don't have to suffer anymore. And, um, it, it it's just, I've been through this before, but it just doesn't make it any easier, you know? And I am now turning all you guys into my therapist. So that's, that's great. <laughs> um, okay. So let's, <laughs> let's, uh, read an email here. Um, this email is from patron Torin, and Torin writes, Is Trump insane? And goes on to say, uh, Hello, Dr. Honda. I emailed before because I really enjoyed your topics on Trump and the ethics of public figures diagnosing him. Um, I'm not sure if you have heard the latest news about a Yale psychiatrist, Dr. Brandy Lee, apparently being brought in front of members of Congress to talk about Trump's mental fitness. And Torrin provides a, a, a link to an article and Torrin provides some, some comment on it, which I think is, is interesting. Uh, so before going on with this email, I just want to say, I've talked about this before, but I feel like I need to reiterate my opinion about this. So um, let's go on with this email. Every time I see an article like this, where some mental health professional publicly diagnoses a public figure like this, I am reminded of your episodes on the topic and what you said regarding being it being unethical. I don't understand how, how a professional like this can publicly diagnose someone from, from a distance. But this case seems to be very interesting because it seems to be gaining steam. First, when asked about this, the APA simply responded, Member psychiatrists should not give professional opinions about the mental state of someone they have not personally evaluated, unquote. So Torrin is providing a, I think it's the American Psychiatric Association, saying that uh, member psychiatrists cannot diagnose people from afar. And then Torrin goes on to say, it seems to be that Dr. Lee still understands this to a point, but seems, but it also seems like she still shares her opinions of Donald Trump's mental state without calling it flat out a diagnosis. In the article, it says, Lee made it clear that she is not in a position to diagnose the president or any public figure from afar, but she said that it is incumbent on medical professionals to intervene in instances where there is a danger to an individual or the public. She argues that the president has exhibited behavior that has risen to that level of danger. Torrin goes on to say, in fact, the article that popped up into my newsfeed this morning was one with a very dramatic headline. It said, Trump could destroy the entire human species, says Yale psychiatrist who warned Congress members. Torin goes on to say, I am wondering what your thoughts are regarding the ethicality of this. Ethicality. I like that word, ethicality of this. The scary reality is we have two major world leaders provoking each other, bragging about nuclear buttons on their desks. It's a very worrying time for anyone, but especially for anyone concerned about nuclear war. What do you think? Do you think her argument that it is acceptable to publicly make comments on someone's mental health if they are in a definitive imminent danger? If you find it ethical, what do you think about Trump's mental health in terms of the possible extinction of the human race? Okay, so I've said this before, and I'll I'll say it again. If anyone, regardless of their profession, wants to criticize Trump's behavior, his politics, his decisions, his tweets, his personality – Whatever you want to say, if you want to say, if you want to stand up as a psychiatrist or as a plumber or as a, um, what do they call the people who cut down trees, arboreal person, regardless of what your profession is, if you want to stand up and say that you believe that, that Trump is a danger to our society, then that is absolutely your right. And if that's how you feel, you probably should say something. If you believe that nuclear war is uh, a, is p- a possible uh, or the, the the threat is rising, given what Trump is doing, if you want to if you want to say that and you want to um, blog about it and at the end you want to say, and by the way, I'm also a psychiatrist, then fine. You, you can say that. You, political opinion, commentary, uh, is all completely uh, the American way you, uh, especially today right Everyone has a blog so you should be communicating about that however when you you, you use your profession to and you ignore clear ethical guidelines to, diagnose someone or even necessarily comment on their on what you believe their mental condition to be you've crossed the line and uh, and in my view uh it's it's like if if you think that commenting on Donald Trump's mental illness so to speak I put that all in quotes is going to change anything. I, I just, I'm here to tell you that I, it's not, <laughs> you know, it just because, um, you know, I, I, find that people think like, okay, well, I'm a professional and I'm a psychiatrist or I'm a psychologist and I'm going to, I'm going to provide my professional opinion and I'm going to diagnose Donald Trump because this is going to convince people. And I'm here to tell you, like, it's not working one. Um, and also, uh, it's, it it opens the door to a practice that you do not want in our society. We do not want politicized mental health professionals diagnosing for political reasons because this, you know, and I, I, I say this all the time in these episodes, there were legitimate psychiatrists and psychologists and other mental health people who were diagnosing President Obama when he was in office and and they still do diagnose President Obama there there are you know competent assessors who became politicized for one reason or another during Barack Obama's presidency who th- had the exact same mindset they were terrified of of what Barack Obama meant and what they, you know, they were scared. And so they resorted to diagnosing Obama. And so if, if we allow ourselves, because, you know, the mental health field is majority liberal. If we say as a field, we're, we're going to, you know, well, yeah, you can't diagnose Obama, but we can certainly diagnose Donald Trump from afar because, you know, we don't like him. I find that just to be not right-headed. And again, it, it opens the door to 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 future problems. It, that's why long ago we decided that this was not something that was uh, ethical. Again, if you want to state your opinion and you you want to... You know, pick it in the streets, and you want to write a blog post, and you want to vote differently, and you know you want to do all that. Then, absolutely, um, I believe we should be marching in the streets. This is a this is something that needs to be looked at. Um, and uh, but again, to to diagnose from afar, it, and it also makes our profession look like hacks when you have people. Stepping forward against ethical codes and getting support—it just makes us all look like a bunch of uh, uh, motivated reasoning liberal hacks who, you know, are willing to throw away their principles for a political reason. And it—it's just—it's just not, you know, uh, it, I there's a there's a very important line that needs to be upheld how can people respect us when we go against our ethical codes and how can people respect us when we have people breaking ethical codes and the and many people in our profession rally behind them uh, it just it's not a good idea there's a, there's an analogous political situation in which there's always been tension between the federal government and state government and in the past we as if when when we had quote unquote conservative states that were doing conservative things and we had a liberal government we would argue that the federal government has the right to impose law upon a state even if the state government doesn't want that to happen we we did that with uh, the civil rights movement and and all this kind of stuff. I'm not an expert on this, but um, I hope you get what I'm saying. We're, and so in the past, there there have been times when we're like, well, you know, the federal government knows better, and therefore the federal government needs sometime, ha, sometimes has the right to overpower a state government. Well, we're in a situation now where you have uh, some states – who are rebelling against the Trump administration by having sanctuary cities, right, for, um, you know, for immigrants not to be deported. And now we're in a situation where the liberals are saying, well, we need the states, you know, the Constitution lays out that the states have rights and the federal government can't impose their will on states and blah, blah, blah. And so now we 're in a situation where we 're like, "Well, wait a second, we want the states to have power because sometimes the federal government is bad, according to our opinion, and is imposing bad law and bad regulations on us, and we want to have the power to push back so which one is it? you know Is it that we believe the federal government is better in the Constitution, and you know Supreme Court law should support that, or do do we believe the states should have rights?" and it 's similar in this situation it 's analogous because if if we you know how many of you who out there who are liberals and, and hate Trump, how many of you are in full support of psychiatrists and psychologists publicly diagnosing Barack Obama when he was in office i 'm guessing none of you are in support of that i 'm guessing none of you are saying yes it's a good idea for a conservative psychologist to claim from afar that they have diagnosed Barack Obama with narcissistic personality disorder and again I've talked about this on the podcast before you go online you will find these these psychologists publicly laying out their the criteria and when it comes to personality disorders it's not hard to 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 try to to uh, convince an, a a layman audience Layperson audience that you have successfully diagnosed someone with personality disorder because personality disorders are extremely difficult to understand and uh, really uh, defy words sometimes in terms of understanding. You have to experience it anyway. So, if if we're like yes, uh, diagnosing Donald Trump is okay. Well, the next time we have a liberal, uh, you know, democratic uh, president. And the whole thing starts all over again. How many of you are going to be, like, still okay with it? So, again, all of... It's just... there's It's an important line, and, and it's been debated, and it's been discussed for decades. And all the experts will say, no, you, we can't diagnose from afar. There's just too many problems with it. And plus, it doesn't make any sense, you know? to Someone's political... Behavior is a decision that they and a bunch of people decide for themselves. You know, uh, they they all decide. Okay, this is what you're going to do here, and this is what you know. This is the political move you need to make here, and here's the suit you have to wear, and here's here's the way you need. You know, here's a speech that you need to say, and here's our policy. You know, there's a it's a thing that they actually think about. So to to say that you can tell someone's personality through all of that mess is is just ignorant of how things actually work. Uh, In order to properly diagnose Donald Trump, he would have to actually ask you, please diagnose me. And then you would enter into a problem, especially if it came down to personality disorder, you'd have to sit down with with Donald Trump for probably, I'm guessing, months before you could really sift through what was happening. Because I'm guessing he has a, a pretty... Uh, practiced way of presenting himself in a particular way. And it would take a while to really understand his his genuine personality, the, the one that he's not putting on, that really all politicians put on. I mean, do you think that all politicians are acting their natural self when they're in public, and when they're uh, doing those kinds of things? Um, it, it's just... It's absurd to think that you would be able to know someone's personality through that. Having said that, there are some diagnoses that are probably less of a problem. Like if someone in the meet, you know, if some politician stepped forward and said, "Like I suffer from depression," and or I'm suffering from something that seems like depression, I, I can't get up in the morning and it's been happening for about a, a 9 months you know 12 months lately and i i feel, i just don't feel like i enjoy anything anymore and i'm really lacking energy it's hard for me to concentrate and i went to my physician they said you know there's nothing physically wrong with me and, and i don't know i just feel like my my self esteem is bad right now you know if a politician said all that you could probably say I'm pretty sure that person is suffering from major depressive disorder. And again, that would be diagnosing from afar, but you just have such clear data and there would be no reason why a politician would lie about that, right? Uh, so, but when it comes to a, a personality disorder, the, the notion that you could detect the, uh, someone's personality. Uh, through their political persona is, is, is totally absurd to me. It just really is absurd. I have diagnosed people with narcissistic personality disorder. I've diagnosed people with borderline personality disorder. I've diagnosed people with histrionic, with um, psychopathic or antisocial. These things take a long time. When every time I, I, I w- with one of my clients who had borderline, I probably assessed her for—I'm guessing nine months—before I felt confident enough to say, "Okay, I, I think I've worked through all the differentials, and I, I'm pretty confident that this is what's happening here." Um, It—it's—it's it's very hard to diagnose someone with a personality disorder. It—it it takes a long time. I—I I had a a fellow who I ended up diagnosing with a narcissistic personality disorder, but it took a long time. He, uh, you know, every session there was something different that was happening, and I started thinking, oh, you know, is it a personality disorder, is it something else? Is, is it depression? Is it social anxiety? Is it, um, is it just kind of his way? What's going on here? And it takes a long time, and you really just have to experience it Human to human, and really go over a lot of different situations for them, and you know, problem solve and check boxes in your head, and over time, you you slowly start to um, understand enough to be able to diagnose someone with personality disorder. And the notion that you could diagnose Trump in that way is just—it's absurd to me. Again, having said all that, I will close by saying that if you are a mental health professional. And you want to uh, protest any president, any political figure, regardless of who they are, then you should. You should do that. Again, that's the American way. Speak your mind. Freedom of speech, political discourse, influence the politicians. You know, you let your voice be heard. Say what you want. You can. You, you know, a, for example, Doctor Lee could say something like. I believe that Donald Trump is the most dangerous human being on the planet right now. I believe, given what I've seen him tweet, given what I've seen him say, or heard him say, I believe that he is endangering every American and possibly many other countries with the way that he is acting and the decisions he's making. I believe that he i i believe that there's a there's a there's a chance that he is going to cause he's going to set in motion uh, uh you know events that will lead to the destruction of this planet and here is my evidence cuz he said this tweet and he said that and he didn't respond to this and he's doing this and he's doing that if you want to say that and you even want to say, and as a doctor, I am here to tell you that I am a smart person, and I know these things, or I don't know, just some kind of statement about like you're a you're a smart person because you're you happen to be a psychiatrist. If you want to say that, then by all means. But if you want to say that I have diagnosed, i I have professionally diagnosed Donald Trump as blank, and therefore, he should be removed from office because when someone suffers from blank, they should be removed from office, then you have crossed the line. And there's just, in my mind, there's, it's obvious. There's really just no debate about it. And all the ethical codes support that. It's not like I, you know, there are a lot of things that I, I am not like everyone else. Like I was saying earlier, lots of people have problems with two therapists being involved with one client i am I am on an island. no one agrees with me, or <laughs> very few people agree with me with when it comes to this, I am firmly in the standard I am in the standard of care. I have the exact same opinion as all of the ethical experts and, and particularly when you think about the history of our field, going back to, I think to the sixties we established this the goldwater principle, I think it was anyway we've been um you know, it's been established. This is, I am right in the middle, and so, but if you, you know, read news articles or you go on the internet, you, you would think it was the opposite, right? You would think that, as you know, it was it was not the case. But this is, I'm in the majority opinion here, and so it's not like um, this opinion is weird. It's a it's firmly established. So when Doctor Lee steps outside of that now. Torin is saying that Doctor Lee is being a little coy about it. Doctor Lee is saying, "Well, I'm not diagnosing Donald Trump, but I am telling you that there is something medically wrong with you know, there's something wrong with his mental state or something like that, which is it's definitely getting into the direction of of diagnosing. Um, you've you know, essentially, the Doctor Lee is saying, "I have assessed him from afar, and I know there's something wrong with his." He, there's something wrong with his mental condition. He has a, with his personality. And therefore, he's a danger to others. And therefore, I have an ethical responsibility to step forward. It's just like, it's absurd. No, no, you don't. And, and, and again, I'll just say one more time all you got to do is look up or listen to my past episodes on this and hear the statements that psychiatrists, psychologists, mental health professionals made about Barack Obama all you have to do is is read those quotes and hear though and and listen to those interviews to realize oh yeah this is absurd i mean you know anyone any professional with a political bent can 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 say any if they can say anything about any political figure and say like they have a you know they're antisocial or something it it just you really notice how ridiculous it is when, if you're a liberal and you listen to these people talk about Barack Obama, you very quickly realize how ridiculous it is is for any mental health person to diagnose a politician. It just, and just because you, it sort of falls in line with your way of thinking as a liberal doesn't make it right. Do you know what I mean? So anyway, all right, well, that does it for that rambly ranting episode of psychology in Seattle. Uh, Thanks for joining me out there, and thanks for letting me uh, vent about my experiences with my cat. Uh, I will send you a check in the mail. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do.